This episode of the Alley on the Run show is brought to you by Aftershocks. Go to ontherun.aftershocks.com to save $50 on your wireless headphone endurance bundle. Welcome to the Alley on the Run show. I'm your host, Allie Feller, and every week I talk with inspiring people who lead interesting lives on the run and beyond. And while running is the thing that brings us all together, on these episodes, we cover more than what happens on the run. We learn the whys behind the runs, the decisions people have made to get where they are today, and how getting sweaty has factored in. Now, my guest today is a returning favorite. Caitlin Gregg Goodman is here. After years of online friendship, I loved getting to finally meet Caitlin at the Olympic trials in Atlanta last month, which feels like a lifetime ago, doesn't it? Caitlin is a 232 marathoner who runs professionally for the Boston Athletic Association. And honestly, she was one of my dark horse picks for a top three finish in Atlanta. After a brutal hamstring injury in 2018, Caitlin came back so strong and so fit, and her training leading up to the trials was so good. She was in peak physical and mental shape. When Caitlin got to the start line in Atlanta, she was ready. She was the 29th fastest qualifier in the field. She was ready to do great things. But just a half a mile into the race, Caitlin went down. She fell hard, and it was bad. After taking some time to recover physically and emotionally, Caitlin agreed to come on the show since we all know and love her so much here and to talk about that day from her perspective. She has some really good, really positive takeaways from that day. Plus, in addition to running professionally, Caitlin has a master's in public health, so no better time to bring her on the show, right? We wrapped up this episode by talking just a bit about the state of the world, about whether she saw all of this coming, and about what she wishes everyone understood about this global pandemic we are living in. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of heavy stuff for one episode, I know, but I promise you will finish this one with a very loving, happy heart. And Caitlin, if you're listening, we all love you and support you and can't wait for you to return to the races, whenever those races are. So please welcome Caitlin Goodman back to the Alley on the Run show with a a special guest at the end, Annie, my daughter. You know, we're recording these episodes in a time of a little bit of craziness and not a lot of childcare, not any childcare. So uh, you might hear little Annie's voice in the background a bit at the end there. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. Let's get on to the show. Caitlin, this officially marks your third time on the Alley on the Run show. I am so excited to have you here today to catch up. How are you doing? Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Third time's a charm. Yeah. I did do it again. I mean, I feel like second time. Well, first time was a charm because it was the first time. Second time was a charm because it was in real life. So, Oh, my God. Second time was amazing. And before I knew we were chatting here, I was actually re-listening to your trials recap and the live show because I just wanted all the warm fuzzies and um it was a great warm-up for this so yeah. yay third time so many warm fuzzies I feel like for so many of us whether you were there running or as a fan or not even there in Atlanta but just cheering everyone on from afar I feel like so many of us are looking back on that weekend as like the last great weekend before everything went to um 
where it is now and where it might be going. So um, a lot to talk about. But for anyone who's maybe this is their first time listening to Caitlin Goodman on the show, let's redo our warm up here. Can you remind everyone who you are, where you're from and what it is that you do? Yeah, so I'm Caitlin or Runner KG on the interwebs. Uh, I run professionally for Adidas and the Boston Athletic Association. I more relevant now, I think, uh, than than the last time we talked. But I hold a master's in public health uh, from Brown, and uh, I do some public health consulting. I'm a running coach, and my mantra is to run joyfully. Yay. I remember screaming that at you when you ran by um, during Gosh. the trials. And of course, I didn't know at the time how your race was going. I just saw you and said, be joyful or something. And that is like a hundred <laughs> times, a thousand times what I needed to hear. And I know I told you this offline, but you were one of the like faces and voices that I actually heard. Like it was so loud out there. I didn't hear my husband. I didn't hear my parents, but I heard you. I like made eye contact with you. And that was like when I needed cheers the most. So that is a, a memory that really sticks out when oh, I need it. Well, good. And I have to, I mean, shout out to the BAA and to Adidas. Your, what you wear, your kit, your uniform is really easy to spot. And so the blue and the yellow, you are an easy one to find. And I mean, you were right up front, so it was easy to find you. But um, I want to talk That's about that race. Want, right? You know, so you can be on TV. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I kid. But <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the public health stuff. We're going to get into that in a little bit. But first, I would love to go back and talk about that weekend in Atlanta. It's been, if you can believe it, it's been more than three weeks since we were all down in the great state of Georgia, since we got to meet in real life. Um, we're going to get into all the details of your race. But right now, looking back, how are you feeling? I I have felt probably like every emotion since then. I think, um, you know, spoiler alert for those who, you know, didn't see the results. Um, I did not finish and um, had some kind of, you know, really tough injuries that, you know, running is not supposed to be a contact sport. <laughs> um, so because of uh, going down in the first mile, uh, my injuries prevented me from finishing. And so I think like once I came home, I started to really feel the immense sadness and kind of like really felt the loss of that. And um, so, you know, like trying to work through that, that's been hard. But obviously, it's all been kind of like put in perspective with what's going on in the world with coronavirus. And um, I think so now now I'm kind of at a place of just um, acceptance with it and really been trying to focus on remembering all the good parts of that weekend and you know, it's like, it's kind of like your wedding day. If, if stuff goes wrong on, on your wedding day, which, you know, mine did, they had like the wrong colors on the tablecloths and I don't know that the cake wasn't cut the right way, you know, little things, right. Those aren't the things that you're going to remember about your wedding day, right. You remember all the amazing things and like, that's what is going to stand out in 10, 20, 30 years. And so it's kind of like trying to do the same thing with the marathon or for me, it, it wasn't a full marathon. <laughs> I don't know, 12.8 miles or whatever I ran. And so I'm just trying to focus on like all the really good parts. And that's what I want to kind of like rise to the top. Well, I love that outlook. No surprise there that you have a brilliant outlook on all of this and a commendable one. Going into the race, how were you feeling? Feeling good? I was actually feeling amazing. Like I don't think I've ever got into a race so prepared mentally and physically. 
Um, which is why like it makes it all the harder, you know, how it ended up playing out. But I was really ready to go. I had had a lot of, you know, kind of challenges that I'd worked through with injury and then having like my stomach go south on me in New York, which is my last marathon before the trials. And so, you know, I was ready for things to really like start to go my way and start to line up for me. And they had, this was the best marathon buildup I had had to date. I, it was the first one I told my husband, like the first marathon buildup where I I didn't cry, (laughs) you know, usually there's one long run, one 22 miler where like, it's hard, it's miserable. And you're like, you know, crying on the side of the bike path somewhere. <laughs> uh, that That's the norm for me, maybe not for everybody. But this was the first one where just like every run, I really, things were clicking. Not to say it wasn't hard, but I just was really enjoying the process and feeling like I'd figured out the marathon. And, and I'd done the work mentally, I, th- I thought, to really be prepared, you know, for what Atlanta was going to throw at us with the hills and, um, you know, just such a talented group of women. So I was really ready. I mean, you know, I, I wanted to be up in the front and be in the mix and be prepared for, you know, I know, I know I wasn't a favorite, but I, I felt that if a door opened, I was ready to fully sprint through it and, um, see some opportunities and, um, you know, do well. So, um, I was feeling really good going in. Can you actually explain? So I think that you mentioned during the live show you were seated 30th, right? Mm, 29th. 29th. Okay. Um, So you were seated 29th. And I know we talked a bit about that during the live show where people were seated. Can we take this as an opportunity? Can you kind of educate everyone listening on what exactly that means? And where do those numbers come from? Yeah. So the seating is based on the descending order list of your qualifying time. And and I guess if you had run like two marathons in the qualifying window, it would be your, your faster marathon. So my time was 232.08, which uh, was the 29th fastest time of the qualifying women. And so that then influenced where you stood on the start line because um, there was, you know, 500 plus of us. And um, and so, yeah, then you had like bib you know, 29 was like on my back. So it was actually kind of cool. You could see, um, as you're running, like the women in front of you, you could see what they were seated, you know, bib number one or, you know, bib one, number 100. And if they were around you, you kind of had a sense of where you were. You didn't know what place you were in necessarily, but you could see where you were relative to who you were seated against. I actually didn't know that with the bib numbers. Um, I wish I knew that when I was in Atlanta. So, so bib one, was that Jordan? Uh, yeah, probably. Yeah. I think she was one. Um, I think I was like Desi four or something. I don't remember who's, but you know, now I'm going to go back and look just because I'm fascinated and look at everyone's backs for their bib numbers. My number on my back actually came off, uh, (gasps) when I fell. So no one knew what I was when, uh, (laughs) I had no bib number on my back. They were like, there's a bandit at the trials. Totally. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. let's get to that point in the story, which is my least favorite part of the story. But um, let's talk about it. Uh, so you lined up. So you run it a 232 to qualify. You're seated 29th. Did that mean mm-hmm. you were in the first group on the starting line? I was actually the second group. Okay. Um, so the first group, I want to say, was like the top 15 seeds. Maybe it was top 20. Um, and then the second group was everyone who had the A standard and then there were two other groups. I'm not sure how they split the the rest of the groups then. But honestly, you know, people could kind of wiggle their way up. You could kind of 
push your way to <laughs> wherever you're standing. So I was standing kind of on the second uh, line, you know, not right on the front at the start, but like the second row back. Okay. And what was the vibe like at the start line? Um, I mean, I think everyone was cold. That's one thing I, that stood out. It was, it was cold out there. Um, and when you had to give away your last like throwaway gear as you're standing on the start line, it was cold, but I was excited. I mean, Meb was up there like doing the, he was like the official starter. Um, you know, whenever I like stand on a start line, I just, you know, try to, I, I feel some like calmness when they play the national anthem, um, or sing the national anthem. And, you know, it takes you back to like all the start lines you've been on, you know, throughout your athletic career. And so I was just like really, really excited. Um, really jazzed. There's so many people out there. It was, um, yeah, exciting. All right. Let's talk about the first, let's say 800 meters. Walk us through <laughs> it. What did it look like? Uh, quickly shifted from exciting to like, holy crap, what's happening here? Um, it was so crowded. I have never been in a, a start line so crowded before. Even when I when it's like a mixed gender race and you're racing with men and the men are all up in there with you, it was so crowded. And and because it was cold and because it was windy and the first mile is uphill, um, it was slow. Nobody wanted to lead. I remember being like, man, I should just go to the front. Like, why are we jogging here? <laughs> um, I think our first mile was like 6.10, 6.15, which, you know, for – the paces we were hoping to run, you know, that's a good 30, 40 seconds slower than, than what people were running the rest of the marathon. So because it was so slow up front, it was just immensely dense. And, um, the way that the course was structured, we really just kind of like funneled into a really narrow, narrow part of the course. There was a turn really early in the first 800 meters. So everyone was just like jostling, like, you know, tripping over each other's feet and elbows flying and, you know, people kind of, uh, I just remember people kind of just exclaiming like, you know, Hey, or watch it. Hey. And, um, and I remember just feeling really overwhelmed and, uh, like claustrophobic. (laughs) And so, yeah, that, that was a really unfamiliar feeling because, you know, like New York city marathon, if you're in the pro field, there's like 40 women and you got the whole road (laughs) or even, even again with races with men, it's, it's, you know, it's much more spread out. Um, and so, yeah, the first 800 meters, um, I I don't know exactly where the the falls happened because I don't know, I was trying to like dig into my Strava data and figure out where it was, but, uh, probably around 800 meters in, I stepped in either an Atlanta pothole or an Atlanta man cover that was not covered, but I remember rolling my ankle and just, you know, I think I've said a word I shouldn't say on your podcast. (laughs) Um, and it, it hurt a ton and I like went down, but like popped right back up. It wasn't, you know, it was just kind of just like, holy crap, did that just happen? Um, but popped down and popped right back up and just feeling really flustered. And also then like really wanting to protect the space around me. But I think all the, every, that was everyone's like fear, right? It was like, stay on your feet, stay on your feet. And, um, it was crowded. And the next thing I knew, probably about 10 seconds later, you know, elbows were flying. And I remember someone on my left stumbling, stumbling into me. And then, you know, I was already a bit unstable on my feet from the ankle. And I just remember kind of moving sideways (laughs) instead of moving forward, we're supposed to be running forward. And I was going sideways 
taken some steps, you know, horizontally, just trying to stay on my feet, but I did not stay on my feet and I was down. And the last thing I remember was just like screaming, um, which is kind of scary, <laughs> just kind of like letting out a scream. And then, and then I came to on the ground. Um, yeah, <laughs> not, not, not what is supposed to happen in the first mile of your, the biggest race in, in your career. Definitely, Definitely not. You, um, when you wrote about it, you likened it to the scene in The Lion King, of course, the stampede <laughs> and getting trampled. Yeah. When that happened, you know, you've got 500 women storming down the street. What, when was your opportunity to get back up? Well, how did that work? You know, um, I don't remember the whole part about being on the ground. Um, and I was starting to piece some of that together from recollections from other women after the fact. Um, I'm really glad I don't remember it because the recollections from other women were really scary. Like as they were telling me what had happened, um, Caitlin Christman was giving me a recap. Um, a few other women reached out and shared what they saw or shared what they heard me screaming. You know, it, it was, I, I don't remember the worst of it. So I'm glad I don't want to know that part of it. My brain is, you know, hiding that somewhere and, and that's okay. Um, but from what I heard it, you know, it was so crowded. It, it's like a, it's like a car crash on the freeway. Like the first person, you know, runs into the guardrail or whatever. And then the car behind them hits them and then hits them. I, I don't think other women went down. Um, but they, you know, I was there like in their path. And so I kind of just got trampled and got kicked in the head. Um, oh. but I don't remember that part. That's someone told me they saw that, you know, so I don't remember that. I mean, my black eye kind of <laughs> gives it away, but, um, I, the first thing I remembered was seeing my sunglasses on the ground and my reaction was like, Oh, that's weird. Like, why are those on the ground? They should be on my head. <laughs> um, and I picked up my sunglasses, like kudos to Adidas shades. They did not like get broken or anything. I put them on and I was like, Oh, they don't fit because my eye was like swelling. But, um, I think uh, someone else maybe had tried to help pick me up or, um, I remember somebody like patting me on the back and kind of trying to urge me forward. Um, you know, the, the parts that I do remember were, you know, women helping me like it was, you know, people just trying to support you. We, we've talked so much about how this weekend was about women supporting women and cheering each other on. And like, I heard three or four people just be like, it's okay, Caitlin, like people knew it was me. And, you know, spared a few words, you know, to, to help me get moving. And I think when I got up, I was in like, 150th place instead of like 20th place. So in my brain, I, I, you know, I was saying like words I shouldn't say on your podcast, but a lot of swear words. And then, um, you know, kind of took stock of like, I was like, wow, everything hurts. Um, but my reaction was just like, I gotta get to the front. And I don't know, you know, if anyone, <laughs> they, they might've heard me, but I, I remember saying like, excuse me, I need to get to the front. And now I'm like, I said that out loud to these women and I'm sure they're like, who is this crazy lady? Like, of course we all want to get to the front, you know, <laughs> who is this girl? Um, but I, you know, so sorry, whoever I said that to as I was weaving, but, um, I saw some of my teammates and I came up upon, um, uh, Allie and Michaela Hackett, they're twins who run for the BIA and good friends of mine. And I just was like, I fell twice. Like, what do I do? And Michaela was like, just keep running. <laughs> um, and, and so my, my mindset was like, just get to the front as fast as you can because nobody can trip you there. 
like if you're in the front, there's nobody in front of you. Um, so I did just kind of like get to the front as fast as I could. And somebody had said to me, um, I think it was Maddie Duhon was like, are you okay? And I was like, no, but what am I going to do? And so that just like, really, you know, I had to flip the switch and say like, all right, I just, <laughs> what are you going to do? And yeah, then it was time, you know, time to switch gears. Um, but the Lion King reference, you know, I, some people after the fact were like, oh, you're, you're trying to be funny about it. That's good. And honestly, I wasn't trying to be funny. Like that was really what I kept thinking about for three miles out there. I couldn't remember what Simba's dad's name was. And I, the, I was just Mufasa. like, Simba's dad's name? Right. Duh. Yeah. Mufasa must, you know, getting kicked in the head. I, I couldn't remember his name. And so that was a good distraction to think about like, what was his name? <laughs> but I was Simba. Um, at one point I told myself on the course, I was like, be the wildebeest. Don't be Simba, you know? <laughs> um, but yeah. So that oh, there's man, my Lion man. King reference. <laughs> well, I have to imagine that what got you off the ground was probably just some crazy rush of adrenaline and confusion. But as you started running and once you got past the initial shock and the Lion King references, let's say <laughs> three miles in, I mean, I can't get past the fact that you got up and kept running at all. That to me is just crazy. But I also understand that in moments like that, especially when you're only half a mile into the your dream race, uh, what else do you do, right? I mean, I think that was kind of my mindset, right? It's like, what else do you do? And I think if this had happened four years ago, like before my hamstring injury, I might have like laid on the ground and cried um, and like felt sorry for myself. But I think a lot of the last year and a half, two years of my running has been about getting back up again when you get kicked down. And so, you know, that was kind of like what I knew and that that's been the, the underlying theme of the last, you know, since summer of 2018 is like, all right, get knocked down, get back up again. And I didn't know like how, <laughs> how very much I would have to rely on that. Get back up again, literally. Um, but I've had some races where, you know, things hadn't gone my way and it was like, all right, well, you got to change your mindset. And I, so I think I, because I'd practiced that I'd been able to, I, I was able to, you know, just immediately go there with my brain and that became the new mantra. Um, and I have to say, I just, I, my, my head also went to Gabe Gruenwald and we've talked about Gabe. We talked about Gabe on the live, sh live show. Um, I, had a dear friend, Gabe's age, um, also like equally talented athletically as Gabe, you know, an Olympic hopeful in water polo. And, um, she, uh, passed away from cancer, uh, almost three years ago now. And so in the same way, Gabe has been an inspiration to me and her mantra of it's not what you expected, but I hope you can adjust. Um, you know, I've borrowed that Ladia, I think, was sharing those messages. It, maybe it was the podcast with you. Um, but I, when when Ladia had shared that, I was like, I got to adopt that. And I'm sure that's how my friend Heather. I mean, I, I know that's how she lived her life once her, her, that was her diagnosis. And so um, that became the new mantra for for the Olympic trials. And I drew a lot of strength from from Heather and from Gabe. All right, let's just take a quick break here to talk about our sponsor, Aftershocks. Now I know times are weird right now, 
but I also know that there's something that can make social distancing a little bit better. Investing in a pair of Aftershocks wireless headphones. Now hear me out. If you can't get out and run your goal race right now, if you can't meet up with your best running buddies or your local training group, the next best thing you can do is run with Aftershocks wireless headphones. This way you can still listen to your favorite podcasts, audiobooks, or music on the run, and it'll feel a little bit more like you're running with friends. And in times when we're all feeling a little on edge, these headphones are not going to add any stress to your runs, I promise. They're wireless, so there are no pesky cords to untangle before every run that you get out and go on. And you can use them for phone calls too. So we're trying to stay connected, right? You can use your aftershocks when you're calling your grandmother, your niece, your nephew, when you're FaceTiming your mom to assure her that you're staying in, but is she staying in? Come on, mom, stay in. Take this seriously. Aftershocks are so convenient, so great and really, really nice to have in a time like this. So if we're going to practice social distancing, we may as well make it fun. Take Aftershocks along for the ride. Here's how to do that. Go to ontherun.aftershocks.com. You will save $50 on your Aeropex Endurance Bundle. The Aeropex are my personal favorite headphones, so check them out. That's ontherun.aftershocks.com for $50 off. Now let's get back to Caitlin. You're on your feet. You, is it just an all out sprint? Cause you did get back to the front. I mean, I'm, <laughs> when I saw you, I want to say the yeah. first time would have been around mile two and a half because it was near the fluid station. Mm-hmm. You were back up at the front. So were you just like, don't look at the watch, just sprint? You know, I, I was like trying to piece it together from my Strava data. And unfortunately, because we were in like the like big buildings downtown, it's like kind of hard to tell where, like what pace I was running, but I think I really did just like literally sprint to the front because I watched the broadcast, the replay after, and I was like, wow, no, I did get back to the front really fast. Um, and, and I, my mile split, you know, I was with the leaders at the mile. So, um, I think again, yeah, like you were saying like the adrenaline, I just, it was like sheer panic and just like also almost like self-preservation of like, get out of this crowd, get away from, you know, the stampede. And so, it was probably more like self-preservation than, you know, get, get to the front for, from a racing perspective, but that is also where I had wanted to be in that lead pack. And so I tried to, you know, go back to my original race plan and, um, and get up in the front and, and there was so much energy at the front. I have to say, you know, your, your description of like 500 women storming down peach tree, like to be a part of it, like you felt that energy so much, like, on the course. And so I think that also was just fueling me and like riding that adrenaline and riding that high as long as I could. It was probably good that I, you know, found myself amongst that. And, uh, and there was some comfort too, in in being in the front of, you know, familiar faces and people you've raced against. And, um, I was side by side with Abse, uh, Biru who used to train with me in Providence. So it was just like, all right, find some familiarity here. A lot of things are unfamiliar and uncertain right now. So, um, you know, to be amongst women you've trained with and raced with, that was, that was comforting. So you get back to the front. At what point did, um, sort of the, the reality or the aftermath or really the, the physical toll of that fall start to kick in? Pretty early, I would say. Um, and I was just like shoving it out of my brain, (laughs) out of my head as long as I could around, like on the first loop, I, I remember saying like, oh gosh, like let me take stock. Like my left quad 
feels like I've already run the marathon and I'm only like four miles in. Um, I think I just, you know, I think I probably got stepped on there. (laughs) Um, and I was like, my right ankle is throbbing and I'm bleeding. And, um, but I just like tried to, you know, not think about those things. And I'd worked with a sports psychologist, um, Ro McGettigan, you know, believe I am training journal and she does a lot of sports psych uh, consultations. And she had, uh, in the past counseled me to, um, take a body scan. And so when you're in the middle of the race and things hurt, and you know, you're feeling bad out there, do a body scan and focus on what feels good. And so as I'm doing my body scan, I'm like, all right, check, 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 those things hurt. But like my lungs felt amazing. And aerobically I was, you know, felt great. Like we were running the pace I wanted to run. And so I tried to just focus on that and ignore the injuries and just focus on like aerobically you feel awesome and just try to like focus on that as long as you can. And my mantra before the race had been to smile every mile and, and I had mantras on my bottles. And so whenever I picked up a bottle, I would focus on that mantra. I really did try to smile and, you know, draw strength from that and like, okay, focus on that energy instead of the negative energy that you're feeling in your body right now. Um, and I mean, I did like, there's some pictures of me out there that I am just like beaming because I was so, I really was determined to a (laughs) follow that, that promise I'd made to myself to smile every mile and then be like, try to draw as much strength from the crowds and from my family and friends as I could to keep me in it. And so I, I kind of early on was like, what should I do? What should I do? How badly am I injured? But this is the Olympic trials. You don't drop out of the Olympic trials. <laughs> um, and so as I'm like doing that calculus in my head, um, the distractions were the crowds, like seeing people that, you know, had flown across the country to come see me, you know, cheering for me and, um, you know, seeing friends and familiar faces around mile 10, there was a, a cyclist, um, like who's like a course monitor, you know, they make sure you don't cheat and they're biking next to you and, um, you know, make sure you don't cut the turnaround too early. And I asked her around mile 10, I said, can you tell me where athlete medical is? Because they told us in like the pre-race, um, in the technical meeting where all the, the dropout points were. Um, but I didn't pay attention to that part because I was not going to drop out like hundred percent. I was not going to drop out like, New York City Marathon, I threw up in almost every borough. I did not drop out. Like, <laughs> I was not going to drop out in Atlanta. So I had no clue where to drop out. Um, and I asked her at, like, mile 10. And um, so she was on the radio trying to, like, figure out where I could drop out. And there were – it was, like, another three miles <laughs> until there was, like, a dropout spot. So I just kept running. And, um, yeah, but eventually, like, around mile – it was just before mile 13 um, – I, I felt like I was doing more damage. I was really worried about the ankle when I was running. I was like, did I break it? Like it, I was like, this is the adrenaline had worn off and I was starting to just worry if I was doing like long-term damage. And, um, that was not an easy decision to make. And I was trying to put my coaching hat on and just say like, what would I tell an athlete of mine? I, you know, wished I could like, you know, have a little conference call with my coach mid race and be like, what is the right decision here? Um, and when I did actually drop, uh, I, I saw Kevin Hansen from Hansen's and, uh, he's my brother's coach. And, um, so I was asking him like in a panic, like, 
Kevin, what do I do? Like, is this the right thing? And, you know, he doesn't know what to tell me, but, <laughs> but he was, he was the, the voice to validate that that was the right decision. And, um, and I was really glad he, he did that because I needed that. I needed a validation right then. Yeah. So what did he say to you? Um, you know, he, I, you know, I'm, I just like saw him and kind of like pulled over on the side of the road, like crying. And I was like, I fell, I'm bleeding, I'm injured. I'm really worried about my ankle. What do I do? And, and he's like kind of looking at me in, in bewilderment and, and we, we chatted or he chatted with my folks and my brother after. And he's like, I didn't know if that was the right thing to tell her or not. Um, and the, but I, he, he was validating that it was okay to listen to my body and, um, you know, trust, trust what was a really hard decision. Um, but I kind of like knew deep down was the right one. I just needed someone else to like, give me the vote of confidence to make that really hard call. Um, and he did. Um, but I guess afterwards he said, when I got on the cart, I was like bawling. And when, when they get on the cart, they ask you, they're like, are you a hundred percent sure you want to drop out? Cause this like disqualifies you. And I'm looking at the guy like, no, I'm not a hundred percent. Like <laughs> what? <laughs> but you know, once you get on the cart, you know, decisions made. And so Kevin sees me like driving off in the cart sobbing and he's like, Oh gosh, did I tell her the right thing? So I had to tell him after, yes, you did. Thank you. <laughs> well, but, I think that we all know yeah. that you made the right decision and that it's not worth, you know, fully breaking your body just to finish and that you made the right decision. But I picture you riding off into this cart and it's just the saddest mental picture. I don't like that at all. It was, oh my God, it was like mortifying too, right? Because like you're, you're speeding past everybody on the cart, like past the groups of women that you were running with. And like, I actually saw my dad while I was on the cart and I'm just like looking at him and I like almost like reached my hand out, you know, I mean, obviously he's like across the road. He, we can't <laughs> touch hands, but I'm just like, ah, like dad. And everyone's like watching you. It's like, I don't know. You felt like you're like on stage, you know, giving in an auditorium in high school and you're naked. Like that's what it felt like. <laughs> and you are practically naked out there, right? You're yeah. like brought up. It was freezing on the cart too. And it took a while for them to like get me back to medical because we had to like snake our way through the course and, um, and, I, and we were picking up other women who were dropping out, you know, having bad days. And at one point I was just like sitting in the cart and we were sitting on the side of the course, picking up another woman and I'm just bawling. Like I could not stop crying. And like all the pain is like hitting you too, emotional and physical. And God bless these two women. They were spectators. They just came up to me and this woman took my hand and she's like, honey, it's okay. It's okay. You're doing okay. You did great. And like, I don't know who that woman was, the, these two women, but they were just like, that's what I needed to hear right then. And I, I just, you know, feel really grateful. It was like people showing up when you need them too. <laughs> so God bless the fans. Oh my gosh, like, my heart. Yeah, <laughs> mine too. <laughs> so what happens next? So you finally get back to the start finish area and what happens next? Does your family come? Where were you at emotionally? Walk me through that. Uh, I, I was a mess emotionally um, and physically. Like by then it actually took like like 45 minutes to get to medical, like the final medical. They, they had stopped at mile 14 and like, you know, put some bandage on my knee so I wasn't bleeding everywhere. Um, but by the time we actually got back, I was so freezing. I, I, my body temp apparently had like dropped two degrees and 
so they were like triaging me at the tent and they were like, yeah, she you know needs ankle and bandage and warming blankets. And, and like, I think they said maybe psych too, because I was just like, couldn't stop crying. And, um, I just kept asking for my husband and like, they can't get you into medical, like the med tents reserved for, you know, the doctors. Um, but I was like, my husband's a doctor, please let him in. And eventually they were able to like get him on the phone and get him access. Um, but I didn't see my family for, for quite some time. And I was in the med tent for a while. They couldn't get my body temperature up because I was just like freezing. So they were like wrapping like warm bags of saline around my, like my quad that was like seizing. And, but then they went to put ice on my ankle and on my face. And I was like, I am so cold right now. I cannot ice anything. So they were, they were just doing triage and, you know, it was before most people had finished. The men's race was still going on. So I had all the attention, like, right. Everyone was, I had all the doctors taking care of me. They, they did a really great job in the med tent and, you know, really excellent medical care. Can't say anything uh, bad about that. They were great. And I was asking for updates because my brother was running. So I was like, what place is Brendan Gregg in? Somebody tell me. And, <laughs> you know, so uh, when I heard Jake Riley got second, he was my brother's college roommate and a friend. And so I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, so excited for him and getting race race updates. And they were able to get Avi into the med tent finally. And, you know, it was, it was, I was scared in there. I didn't know what my injuries were. They were worried about the ankle being fractured. And, you know, so then my brain goes to, you know, the worst case scenario and, you know, they were like, Oh, should we go get x-rays for you? And, um, and then I said, well, how much is that going to cost? Cause I, you know, I don't want a huge out-of-pocket medical expense and I don't want to pay an ER facility fee. And, they were like, honey, what are you talking about? I was like, oh, well, I have my MPH and, you know, this, this is what I do. So <laughs> he was like, you don't need x-rays. You can wait till you get home. <laughs> so so I think once I was asking those questions, they were like, okay, we can release you. Um, so, yeah, they, you know, took me in a wheelchair back to the Omni and, yeah, went 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 back to the hotel. All right. Now, I, I ask this with all the love in the world, and I will preface this by saying I think you are beautiful, no matter what. But I saw that photo you posted after the race of your face and I gasped just because it was, it was shocking. You were a human speed bump. When did you see your face for the first time? Did you realize that you were going to have a huge black eye and swelling? Did you know that that's what um, your reflection was going to show? <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> um, and like, thankfully, you know, I put my, my shades back on so nobody could see it when I was racing. And you uh, looked beautiful and you looked very badass and very cool. I will say that the photo you posted, I was like, this is horrible, but she's so cute. Like, <laughs> you're gorgeous no matter what. Um, but it, but it's shocking to see, right? Especially on your own face to see the physical remnants of what happened that you wouldn't otherwise see unless you were looking in a mirror. Yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, not until I got back really to the Omni. Um, I, I knew it was bad because when they wheeled me through the lobby of the Omni, and you know, I know you talked about it on on the recap uh, episode. Like it was like a who's who and running in the <laughs> you know in the lobby, and it was like mortifying. Again, like being in high school, naked in the auditorium. Like that's how I felt because you know everyone was staring at you. And so I knew it was bad because everyone was kind of like, oh, you know, and I got that like all weekend. Right. And um, 
it was, it was awful. Like being in the South, right? Like Avi walking around with me and I've got this huge shiner and I was like, no, this is not, there's no domestic violence here. Like this is, <laughs> this is running as a contact sport. But I saw my friend in the lobby and, um, I was so glad she was there because she just like held me and hugged me as I was crying. Everyone was staring and, and there was like such a line in the elevators. If you were there, you know, the elevator line was really long. So I got to go to the front. I, I cut Desi in line in the elevators because when you're in a wheelchair with a shiner, people let you go. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it got worse before it got better. And I don't know, it was, it was hard to look in the mirror and be like, wow, this is like a really visceral, like gut check, like reminder of what happened. Um, I think Moose, when I came home, Moose, my dog was like, like, what, mom? You know, he was like, he knew something was wrong. He was very protective for the first week or so. But now it's mostly gone. Now there's just like a little bit and you can totally cover it with makeup. So, yeah. All right. So let's talk about the recovery from all of this, both the physical and the emotional recovery. How have both of those (laughs) gone for you? You know, the physical recovery actually, I think, is doing better. Like it was better than I expected. I, I did go see sports med when I got home and, you know, they were doing a lot of evals and my, my husband's an orthopedic surgeon. So I was able to like see his, his partners and his attendings and like, they were great and, you know, got me in and, um, took great care of me. So I actually think like, so the ankle wasn't broken. Thank God. It was just really bad sprain. But I think because I ran like 13 miles on it, it actually healed way better than any sprained ankle I've ever had. So maybe that's the key. I was joking with my friend, like sprain your ankle, just keep running on it, get that blood flow to it. Guys, if, if uh, you're if you're listening, don't take that advice necessarily. Yes, just sorry. see your doctor. Um, don't always run through injury. Caitlin's yes. a superwoman. Um, <laughs> please see a doctor. Right, right. I have no uh, clinical background. Don't listen to that. Um, <laughs> Yeah. No, actually though, like I, I saw my massage therapist who I've worked with for years and, um, you know, she was like, yeah, well you, you look and you know, your body looks about like what you would expect if you were trampled, but you know, we were able to get the blood flowing. And honestly for me, like the recovery, what really helped was like to get up out of bed and get moving. Um, I, I was kind of just like in bed for a week, like recovering. Um, but we took some time the following weekend and, just like I was walking with, with Avi, my husband and Moose, um, at the beach, just trying to like get some blood flowing and physically, mentally, like, I think that was the best thing for me. And, you know, being able to kind of work through stuff and, and I was working through stuff in Atlanta, like already, like we had friends and family there. I had friends, you know, fly down from, from Providence to come watch people kind of, you know, from all areas of my life, teammates past and present. And, I really just wanted to celebrate in Atlanta, even though the race, we weren't really celebrating the race. Like we were celebrating like 12 years of this being a goal for me. Um, and like, you know, what I was saying before, get knocked down, get back up. Like that's, that's been a lot of that the last year and a half. And I wasn't even sure I'd ever make it to the Olympic trials start line given my hamstring injury. And so, um, I just really wanted to celebrate that had been my goal before, and I was like, well, black eye be damned, like we're going to celebrate. And we did. And I, you know, it was, it was amazing. The night after the race, a bunch of friends and uh, old teammates, we just kind of like hung out in my room and I put a beer on my black eye to ice it. And I had another beer in my hand to drink. <laughs> and, um, you know, 
we were gonna we were gonna have a party no matter what. So that really helped kind of get the emotional recovery going. Well, and it's not easy. I think so often with runners, we talk about the physical recovery from an injury or even from a race that doesn't go our way and that there's not enough being discussed about that emotional recovery. And I think like you said at the very beginning when we were talking that you have to give yourself the time to grieve and to accept it and then, yeah, get to the place of of celebrating it. So I love that you did that. And I also have to imagine you talk about this the the goal of coming to the trials and in case people don't remember from episodes one and two that you've been on here (laughs) it's not just the marathon trials for which you qualify I have to imagine that as soon as this all happened you may have had a glimmer in your eye of the track and field trials is that um has that been on your mind so actually the first thing that my I went to was like I because I just felt like I was so ready to have a a great marathon, like a marathon PR. I thought I was ready to break 230. So I was like, well, I'm going to run Boston. And I was just like, immediately went there. And, you know, because I run for the BAA and I live in New England, like, you know, Boston Marathon is the thing. And so that was, was where my head went to. And it was all about, okay, we're going to, you know, recover and switch gears and turn around and run Boston. Now, obviously, Boston is in September and the track trials are up in the air. So, I, I will say like where we are now with coronavirus, that's made it a little harder, I think, with the recovery. Like I felt like I was in a good place and I was processing and like moving forward and I had a new goal to focus on. And now, I mean, you know, I am no different than anyone else who had their spring race goals canceled and, or postponed. So I've like been a little bit more sad and a little bit more down about it and like mourning the loss of, of those races. But trying just to like find the silver lining and say like, well, I'm going to be one of the, you know, few people who runs the one and only September Boston marathon and get really excited about that. (laughs) All right. So let's talk about that since you mentioned it. And since we uh, talked about this early on, you are of course in public health as a profession. So you can kind of look at all of this stuff from, from two sides as the professional runner for whom your livelihood is greatly affected by these races being canceled or postponed. And of course, from the public health side, which I have to imagine is you're saying, yes, this is the right decision. So Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering, like, we keep talking about how the U.S. has been slow to react, slow to take action, that the government knew all this was going on months ago and didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. Even when we were in Atlanta, I feel like we kind of like, we knew this was going on around the world, but it hadn't really come to the U.S. yet. It certainly wasn't where it is now. Yeah. As someone with the knowledge that you have, did you see this coming? So, I mean, I, I guess I, I want to say yes. I when When this first was being reported in China, I was really concerned. And I, like, from a professional standpoint, I was concerned. And then from a personal germaphobe standpoint, I was also like very anxious about it. Um, and actually I had been talking with my therapist about it before the marathon and I was feeling so much anxiety about this becoming a global pandemic and feeling worried about inaction in in the U S and she told me she put a moratorium on, I was not allowed to talk about or read about coronavirus before the marathon trials because I was getting so stressed and anxious about it. And she was like, nope, like you can't control that. Running is about controlling the controllables. And 
yeah, so she told me not to, not to think about it. And then after I was like, okay, now I can freak out. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I think it's so hard, right? Because in public health, if you raise the alarm and you want to enact some really, you know, in some people's opinions, you know, draconian measures and, and kind of do what China did and just totally lock down Wuhan, um, as, as we're seeing now is happening in the Bay Area and, you know, being considered here in New England and in New York. Um, if you do that, and you are successful in preventing the spread, everyone's going to say, oh, you overreacted. We didn't need to do all that. And you're like, the reason that we were successful in preventing the spread is because we did all that. So it's kind of like darned if you do, darned if you don't. Um, it's hard to be an epidemiologist <laughs> or a public health uh, you know, on the front lines with this stuff. So I was definitely anxious um, and, and remain really anxious about it. This is probably the most... Uh, anxiety I have felt in my life. <laughs> scary times. Very scary. And so I'm I'm interested then we keep, I feel like I'm having the same conversation with so many people where we say we feel anxious, we feel scared, mm-hmm. we're terrified. When you're talking about what you're anxious about, and you just said about controlling the controllables, what is it that you're anxious about? Are you worried about getting sick or your family getting sick? Are you worried because you can't control this? Like what is... If you can pinpoint it, what is the source of your anxiety around this? All of those, Allie, all of them. (laughs) No. Me too, Um, me too. (laughs) I mean, so I I get really anxious around the the lack of control part. And I, you know, just, uh, you know, we're talking on the 19th right now. So we're, we're seeing still people in like Florida partying at the beaches and not practicing social distancing um, and not taking it seriously. That makes me anxious because it's really not about you, the 20 year olds who are partying in Florida. It's about you spreading that and then getting your grandparents sick and your grandparents just being in a high risk group. So the way that pandemic plays out and human behavior and personal responsibility, those don't all go out. Go, go very well together. So that that makes me anxious. You know, my husband's in healthcare. He's an orthopedic surgeon. He, his, he's supposed to deal with bones, not pneumonia. And I'm worried about our healthcare system not being uh, prepared with the adequate capacity and him getting pulled into, um, you know, having to treat upper respiratory, you know, COVID-19, be on the front lines and not have enough protective equipment, which we're seeing with our nurses and doctors right now. Uh, I'm scared of getting sick too. I mean, people, I think, People were saying, you know, oh, 80% of cases are mild, but it's important to kind of dig into the the science and the literature here. And it's, you know, when we say mild, pneumonia is still considered mild. Mild means like you're not hospitalized in an ICU bed on a ventilator, but pneumonia is not mild. <laughs> so, you know, you and I, like it could, it could be pneumonia for us or, you know, with, we, we've talked a lot about health stuff with, with preexisting conditions that that's scary stuff for people we know and love and care about. I don't know, man. Running is the only thing that gives me uh, <laughs> some run, running a sanctuary right now. But there's a lot of anxiety. Well, let's talk about the running side for everyone listening, who I assume most of them are runners. Can we have you give and listen, this could all change. We are recording this on what day is it? Thursday, the 19th. Annie. Hi, Annie. Hi, Annie. <laughs> we are scrappily recording this on Thursday. Okay, we'll have a little co-host. All right, yeah. so we're recording this on the 19th. This will be out a week from now. 
Yeah. Where we're at now, where some people are being told to shelter in place, where some people are being told to quarantine, what are some mm-hmm. general do's and don'ts for running? Can people run just not in groups? Is running outside okay? What are your do's and don'ts from a public health professional perspective? Well, I will I will lead the or lead off that answer by saying all of this, you know, is based on what I'm reading and following from people even more advanced degrees and much smarter than I am. <laughs> um, so I'm, you know, relying on what the CDC is saying, what local public health departments are saying, our Rhode Island State Department of Health um, and, and clinical guidelines that have, you know, been trying to read and probably read, you know, too much of it for, for my, my own mental health. But from what I understand, um, being outside, even if you are sheltering in place, that's actually encouraged and recommended. They're telling people, you know, even if you are like in the Bay Area right now and you are totally in lockdown, um, they're encouraging you to get out to your parks, to your trails and and be physically active because we know that's beneficial for both your immune system and for your mental health. Um, but they do recommend doing that alone. Um, or if, if you're living with people, um, it's okay to be within six feet of someone else who's like in your household, who you're living with, either family members who you live with or your roommates. But at this point, I would not be running with people who are outside of your living situation um, unless you're really respecting that six foot distance, um, which I know is hard. Um, I got a few questions on Instagram about this. And I was saying to folks, like, think of it as a challenge that you just have to talk a little bit louder and shout a little bit more while you're running. You know, it makes your run a little bit harder aerobically to like have to talk over those six feet apart. (laughs) Hey, I mean, I could give lessons in that. I, you know, I feel very proud of being such a loud spectator that. Yeah, um, in Atlanta. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, maybe that's maybe that's my next move. I can give lessons on um, social distance running and talking. Um, cool. I like this. See, there's, there's a lot of positives that we can take away from this. And that's where I would love if you could kind of sum up for everyone listening, what is your message to all of the runners listening for whatever camp they're in, whether it's the, I'm taking this very seriously camp or the I'm 25 and healthy. I don't care. I'm at the bars in Miami camp. What do you say to all of them as our, as our resident President of Public Health. That is the title I will give you today. Uh, What's your message to everyone listening? My message is this is really important to take seriously, even if you do feel invincible, as you know, many of us runners do. Um, You know, we we tend to be the young, healthy population. But I bet there is somebody in your life um, who is not young and healthy. And those are the people that your actions, you know, directly impact. And um, so you, you know, have both a lot of power and a lot of responsibility to, um, to take this seriously right now. And yeah, you know, if, if not for your own sake, you know, for people like our, our doctors and nurses who are on the front lines, um, also like the people who are delivering our food, the people who are delivering our packages, um, or who are leading communications, um, you know, our, our health our folks who are leading health professional communication, um, these people are not, not able to shelter in place at home. They still have to go to work because their jobs are essential. And so let's do everything we can to protect them. 
I think that's a really cool way to look at it is you have a lot of power and responsibility. That's very empowering. So I like that. I appreciate you coming on to talk about this and to share. I was like, come on the show, talk about your race of the trials and about the global pandemic that's going on. Um, but you managed to make it inspiring and uplifting. And I just always appreciate your perspective. Annie does too. She's very excited. Thanks, Annie. Um, you know, and, and I look forward to the fourth time that you're on the show because I feel like it's going to be after something really big. It will. There will be no more pandemic and we will finish a fast marathon. <laughs> well, cheers to that. Cheers to the sub 230. I know that it is absolutely in your future. And thank you so much for all that you do for the running community. Oh, well, thank you. Thanks for having me on again. Thank you so much for being here for this episode of the Alley on the Run show. The you, of course, is Caitlin. It's all of you. And it's Annie there at the end. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Caitlin this time around. I think she is one of the greatest, kindest, most genuine people on the planet. And Caitlin, I hope you know how supported you are by all of us here in the Alley on the Run show community. I'm thinking of everyone during these strange, strange times. Uh, I'm recording this intro on Friday night, nearly a week before this episode will come out. And I have no idea what the state of the world will be at the time that you'll be listening to this. But there's one thing I do know. This community is strong and powerful. The connections that we form here are real. If you're looking for more connection, I've got that for you. Come join the Alley on the Run Show Best Running Friends Facebook group. Plus, you know you can always find me. I'm on Instagram and I'm on Twitter at AllieOnTheRun1. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for being a part of this community. And thank you for supporting the work that I do here. It is a huge privilege to get to keep having these conversations, even during uncertain times. And I'm honored you've chosen to be here with me. And surely you saw this coming. Hey, if you're loving the show and you've got some time on your hands, wouldn't this be a great opportunity to go over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review for the Alley on the Run show? My goal is 1,000 reviews by May 6th. So we've got, what, like a little over a month. Head over there. Help me out. It's like a minute of your day, and it just makes my heart so happy and grateful. Finally, big thanks to our sponsor, Aftershocks, for making social distancing just a little less lonely. Go to ontherun.aftershocks.com to save $50 on your Aeropex Endurance Bundle. All right, take care of yourselves out there. Be kind to one another. And thanks for joining me on the run.